Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories with Village Global. I'm here today with special guest Jordan Hall. Jordan is the founder of NeuroHacker Collective, as well as one of the thinkers behind Game B, Sense Making Web, and uh, some of the other exciting uh, ideas that are emerging in the mainstream right now. Jordan, uh, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, it's going to be fun, I think. I've been interested in seeing the things you've thrown out over the past little bit since we first agreed to have this chat um, and noticed the, to be perfectly frank, like the diversity of objects, mostly books that yeah. you're putting out there that I've never heard of before. And then when I delved into them, I was like, damn, I should have heard of these things before. So totally. my own sense of the web is clearly missing stuff. Totally. And some of those were uh, the sovereign individual, Glenn Wells, you know, radical markets, liberal radicalism, and uh, Robert Wright's uh, non-zero, which... Uh, mm-hmm some of the ideas behind them. So first, just uh, let's uh, start with some introduction for the audience who may not be familiar. If you were to characterize the work you've done since DivX, you know, some of the reading, the writing, the thinking, if you were to uh, try to find sort of the underlying thread, what is the interest that, that threads the, the work you've gotten into since, uh, since you were building companies? Well, that's an interesting question. So I think we can actually connect it to that. So the, the thing that was the, the most jarring to be perfectly frank, that kind of kicked me into action was that there was something about the nature of the way that being successful in building companies ended up being distinctly unsatisfying. Um, And most notably in the way that there was almost an inevitable breaking of faith with the community of people whose ethos had fundamentally been the thing that for a long time you were connected with. And so something that happens that as a company, a corporation becomes more successful it has some weird, almost necessity to break faith. Uh, Google is maybe a case in point that, if it, that will land with everybody, including Google employees. And that was just for me, like it's just an individual like uh, moat in my eye or a splinter in my mind was a problem that I was chewing on. And I tried to figure out how to resolve that problem. But in the, re- in, in, in the same time, so we're talking about 2007, 2008, 2009, I also happened to find myself in two different contexts. One context was because I actually had now both time and resources, I was interacting with lots and lots of different, very interesting people who had unique insights into diverse aspects of reality, you know, ranging from folks like Eric Weinstein, who I met in that time frame, who knows things about, say, differential geometry and physics, and lots of other stuff, but in, as an example, to people with expertise in, let's say, uh, like cultural evolution or computer science or the Santa Fe Institute or fill in the blank, lots of stuff there. And then, of course, we had the financial crisis that for very self-serving reasons, I paid a lot of attention to in that time frame, And so these three elements kind of played with each other and led me into a process where I found myself just kind of pulling on the thread of the sweater of reality and noticing that, A, I could pull on it. I could ask questions of somebody who just really knew a particular domain and realize that most of what was understood in the world in that domain wasn't actually literally with the people who are the deepest experts in it thought was the facts of their domain. Um, and that most of what I suppose uh, Robert Anton Wilson would call consensus reality was um, not particularly real and increasingly unstable. And that this was tied to some things that I cared about myself quite deeply. Like let's say, for example, at this point, the world that my children are going to be, going to be growing up into. You can kind of just keep double clicking on that. So it's almost like a 
the thing that got me into being an entrepreneur in the first place is like walking into Blockbuster Video and realizing this sucks, could be better. And then doing the same thing at like my kids' elementary school. But recognizing that to do it better, you can't just be aspiration. You have to really think about what does it really mean to do it really better? So like if you think about education reform as an example, and you say have in the back of your mind the whole discipline of complex system science, you have this notion of a basin of attraction. And you're like, oh, well, almost every effort to make education better fails because education is a deep basin of attraction. And all these different ostensibly separate system dynamics, like say, for example, the way the SAT drives choice making all the way down to middle school and links up to college, which links to getting a job and work, which isn't necessarily part of the educational system, but it's so fundamentally part of the attractor dynamics that you can't do one without the other, right? So recognizing that the whole web that's connected, if you want to move a little bit. So literally, this, this is like the nuts thing. It's like, uh, I remember telling my wife once that I just, I'm one of those people for whom to solve a problem means to solve it in a way that ultimately resolves it for everybody forever. You know, you, you don't, you don't solve the problem. You maybe write the software that's just solved the problem completely. And it's just done. It's now you just you put it in the code repository and other people can access it. That kind of a, of a mindset. So when I looked at my kids' elementary school and just kept looking around going, God, this, this is you know, fucked up in like 50 different ways, up to and including they shouldn't even be at school, full stop. For me to solve that problem just meant, okay, well, what does it really mean to truly solve that problem categorically? And that ended up you know, opening up a big can of worms. <laughs> and I want to get into that can of worms, but we just want, we're on that thread. Uh, if there shouldn't be a school, what, what should there be instead? Well, okay, that's a good question. And this actually, again, actually requires uh, opening up a big can of worms. So let me step back a little bit and take a look at it. So when we talk about the notion of school, we should be aware of the fact that we're actually dealing with a bunch of different things that, that are overlapping. Let's call it different like vectors or forces. So for example, the, the relatively unconscious, which is a relatively unintentional, at least for most people, drifting into the dual income household that began in the 60s and 70s and been accelerated enormously through the 80s and 90s, had a real shift in the nature of the degree to which school is now also carrying a certain load as daycare and a certain load as parenting because parents have less time to parent, right? Just as a piece. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the degree to which school is both functioning as a daycare, just occupying kids' times during the day, and at least ostensibly as a mechanism to cultivate increased capacity and as a mechanism to train them how to participate in just the society that we live in. And then let's just add another one, which is a, some kind of curatorial filtering mechanism in service of the employment sector. Right? So we've all, all these different vectors that are coordinated into the same location. Um, so serving multiple different masters, by the way, um, and rather poorly. So let's step back. Is it realistic to think about how we could actually decouple these and resolve each one of these in a way which is better? Is there a system design that takes each one of these pieces and is able to hold each one in a, in a more um, natural and more wholesome way? Well, then the answer starts to be more interesting, yes. But it does actually require a system design. You can't just make a tinkering change here because you'll notice that, well, as it turns out, you were solving a problem, say, in um, uh, labor space curate you, to get them better job space, but the values of daycare space are actually really what's overriding their attention over time, you know, fill in the blank. So yes, the answer is yes, you can do something, but it requires that you do some crazy shit, which is why I ended up with the whole game A, game B problem. Um, it is my considered perspective that there are ameliorative things that can be done in the context of the world that we live in. 
Um, and there's probably one or two what we might call system upgrades that we could roll out, but that you now I have to do two things. On the one hand, these will be relatively minor in the context of what is more broadly possible. And in fact, ultimately will be necessary. And two, they'll be relatively short lived for reasons that I can go into if you'd like, but they won't, their half-life will be not as long as you, as say previous upgrades have had. So that from my perspective, this then ends up being mostly a transition. So there's a, the way I've articulated is this sort of game A, there's a transition and then there's game B. And so we can focus in all three. We can focus in game A and entirely in sort of palliative care. How do we do less harm in the context of game A? Um, or we can be strategic. How do we unwind the degree to which game A is actually coercively controlling the choice making and energy allocation of, of, the, of the world? Or we could do design in transitionary space. You know, how do we actually do system upgrades that are quite possible now and are actually better in a meaningful way. And there's lots and lots of possibilities for doing that. Uh, but recognizing very consciously that we're doing something that probably won't last more than a generation and a half. Um, or we can do design and game B space, which is okay. What is a place we could move to? We could actually get a global, like a qualitative upgrade across all these different areas of human needs, which happens to be also a truly MVP because the context requires that level of upgrade. I like that we're doing a few things. One, we're limiting some examples with, with education, and we're also getting at sort of the, the differences between game A, the transition, and game B. And now I want to zoom out. And for, for listeners for whom those terms are new, I want to uh, help crystallize, uh, uh, or want you to help crystallize some of them. So, um, you know, another way of asking it could be, hey, you know, you are uh, an entrepreneur just like a lot of our audience, a lot of entrepreneurs, and, and still are, of course. What, what are some of the aha moments that you had over the last decade of, hey, this is, this is significantly different? Or, or put another way, for people to really it, it understand you know, what game A is and what game B is, what's something that, what, what do they really need to understand? Oh, nice. I like that frame. I think that's a really nice frame. And I'm, I'm, I, I appreciate the notion that we're actually speaking with people who are entrepreneurs. And I'm, well, I won't be um, disparaging, but there's a certain class of Silicon Valley entrepreneur who right now I would like to disparage formally. And there's a whole other group of people who let's say are agentic and oriented. Their, their intention and capacity is oriented towards having a sense of aspiration. And what was the term? What was, what was Caesar critiqued for? Oh, damn, I can't remember. Um, intending to do big things like moonshot. They're, they're willing to throw themselves into, onto, the, onto the gears in a big way. So that's, that's nice to be having that conversation. So I think the biggest aha moment and it retroact, retrospectively, it's expected, it's predictable. You know, let's take the phrase that has been put into the mouth of, of Andreessen, which I think was actually said earlier and better, but he coined the phrase software is eating the world well. Okay. Well, let's take that seriously. And first of all, let's just double click on software and, and say that software is an instantiation of a more fundamental class, but that more fundamental class is eating the world. And what does it mean to eat the world? Well, it, it doesn't mean stopping at newspapers, for sure, right? We've already seen it blow past newspapers. Well, what is the actual limit on that? Well, the limit on that is literally the fabric of reality down to the quantum level. Okay, well, what the fuck does that mean? Well, what it means is we're not there yet. We're not down to the level where software is literally eating the fabric of reality at the quantum level. We're somewhere between newspapers and that. But two points. One, we're somewhere, so we can begin to assess where we are. But two, it seems like it's on kind of a curve and so the point where we are and where we will be, you actually have to be doing a little bit of Wayne Gretzky action just to get ahead of the, where the puck's going to be on where, where we're going to be. So, for example, you know, what was it? Well, 10 years ago, 
when I was really thinking about this stuff uh, intensely, the notion that money, right, the, that, that fundamental piece of the fabric of the nation state was about to become eaten by software, or at least was going to begin the process of being eaten by software, was laughable. Right? No fucking way. Like, bald face, straight up, stone face, no questions asked, laughable. Insane. And now it's sort of trivial, right? And it's funny in my life, the degree to which things have moved from impossible to trivial in like within a time frame that is a yawn, like a long span. Like, wow, a decade. We went from impossible to trivial in a week in, in, a, in a weekend, essentially. Shit, I went off, you know, took some heavy drugs, came back from Burning Man, bam. Now <laughs> money's just software. How crazy was that? So that's one like there's a double insight right right there. One is where are we? And the other is the pace at which those things that seem to be the fabric of reality you can simply take for granted become fluid and eventually even maybe become vaporous. So, okay. So we're at a point where, for example, the, 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 the stuff that was at what I would call the social layer, actually, can I back up a second? Yeah, this, sure. this, this model I've articulated on YouTube, but I think I can do it quickly. and It's useful. Sure, sure. Please. So I'm going to do this twice. So the first time is let's just start at the top. You've got a four layer model. The top layer would be finance. So symbolic representations of economy. Then you've got economy, the real economy, capital, labor, people, talented skills, things like that. Below that, you've got society. So now you've got the political system, the legal system, the various institutional structures that we use to do our stuff. So this is now the set of institutional structures that run relatively unconsciously to go about actually processing the mechanics of society. So this would be things like the monetary system as a system, um, the legal system, the political system, the juridical, you know, like all, the, all those constructs. And the educational system, like all those system, system dynamics. Below that level is the cultural level. Uh, this is the even often more unconscious uh, characteristics that are associated with things like deep axiomatic assumptions of what it means to be in-group and out-group. Basal values that more or less are assumed to be shared across the entire field so that we can actually move into coordination space pretty quickly, like cult- the cultural layer. Below that, by the way, is the biological layer, and then we can go all the way down to the center of the earth, at the, again, at the quantum level. Now, I said I was going to do this twice, so I just did it one kind of from the financial down. And then just recognize that you can project this out to something like a sphere. So I did it as like a slice, like a a cake slice through the sphere. But I could have other things at the surface level besides finance. But right now, I'm just going to focus on that because it's concrete and easy. So if we say that software is eating the world, it's going to eat the world from the outside in. Actually, I think I talked about this on a video for Draper University. So if anybody's interested, I think I actually did a whole piece on that. Um, and we can time it. So, okay, as it's moving from the outside in, we can look at where it is and progressively notice where it's, where it's penetrating. And in the past decade, it's penetrated straight through into the social layer. And we're hitting things like money and governance and law, like Ethereum smart contracts. Like these are things that are now the beginning of the process. They're, we're in the early stages, but for those of us who are old enough to have lived through, say, dial-up modems and build-your-own PCs all the way through to where we are, the, the, the point where things are being done by you know, guys with scraggly beards and pizza stains on their t-shirts to the point where it's a billion dollar company, you, know, it's, you can kind of connect the dots. It's not that hard to get ride the S-curve to a particular direction. So we're somewhere around this point of the S-curve in that phase and probably not. And, and they seem to be happening faster. So that's an aha moment, which is to say, ah, all these things around, say, the nation state, for example, or the Westphalian political consensus is now moving into the liquid stage. It's about to be consumed. Um, and also, we're also we're already noticing in the past, say, five years, 
the cultural phase is now in that process. And this is what I was largely writing about. So my medium essays around situational assessment, the Trump election, Brexit, and things like that is recognized that the cultural phase is now in the software meat grinder. Um, and to some extent, things like CRISPR are, are a little, you know, moment is to recognize first that notion that software is eating the world needs to be taken dead seriously. The second is to say, well, what's a meta concept of actually, what do you do? Like when things are moving into that level of change, um, is there a way to actually orient your choice making that is resilient to the context itself being moving from solid to liquid to, to gas, potentially quite quickly in, in, in the time horizon of your own planning environment, for example? So if Facebook's, you know, transformation was, you know, move fast and break things from, from move fast and break things to move slow and build infra. And, you know, we could talk about how satisfying or not satisfying that is. What is, you know, the software eats the world transformation into something, you know, what's the more sustainable version of that? What I hear from you on game A is some version of what got you here won't get you there. And that was a little bit Facebook, you know, move fast and break things to get you a certain element. Now you need to do something different. You know, uh, we needed game A to a certain element. Now we need to do something different. Yeah, that's that's a. I mean, you, you could say that about game A in the sense that game A got us here; it's not going to get us there. Then we have to ask the question: What is what is this? What is game A? If you want to not, if you not want to, if you want to not use that to get to the next place, you have to be very careful about what is that. So the answer to your question is a very profound inquiry, uh, but it's something along the lines of how do we actually become capable as individuals, and then ultimately as groups of individuals, that's, those are two moves that are important, of having the, let's just use the, the terms. These terms are not very good, but they're not terrible. The intelligence, and I'm here going to kind of invoke Verveke's definitions because his definition, his definition of rationality is strong. So let's say the rationality. How do we become capable of having the level of rationality necessary to guide both design and implementation of the total field of the object known as software, right? And again, remember, we're, we're invoking a bigger concept in software, but we're using that as a symbol of representation. So how do we become capable as individuals and as groups of having enough rationality to guide both the design and implementation of the totality of the object known as software um, so as to deliver on something that is in fact actually sustainable at all over a, um, and in this case, it turns out to be an indefinite period of time. I, mean, I can go into that last piece because it turns out to be quite a challenging conceptual landscape to walk into, but it's something like uh, under conditions of accelerating change, things have to be awfully time invariant, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And, and while we're still in the de- defining the terms for, for our audience, why don't we do our best to uh, crystallize three, uh, the one boy one. So what, what is the best way you explain, you know, whether it's a metaphor analogy or, uh, for you know, technologists listening and investors, what what is game A so they can better understand it, so they can uh, zoom out. If we're if we're going to say it's the thing we're not doing, what is that? Yeah, well, it's going to be a challenge for everybody. Every single class you just mentioned. Um, so I'm going to speak to you not as an investor, but as a biological being that happens to be in the world, and then allow you to be recognized that distinction is a distinction that's real. So there's two ways of saying it that I think are, are generally helpful. One way is. It's literally everything that human beings, not everything, but 99.997% of everything that human beings have been doing to design our world for about the past 30,000 years. So it's not a small thing. It's a big thing. It covers a huge amount of territory. So it includes the totality of the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, and all of their variations and themes. So Soviet Union is game A, as is Eisenhower's America. These are all game A instantiations. Okay, so that's one way of putting it, kind of a 
historical experiential. Conceptually, it seems to be mostly, not entirely, but mostly around the application of the tools and methodologies of complicatedness to manage complexity. And we can really double click on that if you'd like, but these are formal concepts that have been refined pretty nicely over the past decade and a half in the philosophy of science. Can we double click Um, on it a little bit? Can you explain it a little bit? So here I'll I'll reference uh, Alicia Guerrero and Dave Snowden. Um, Snowden's the person who I actually learned these concepts from directly. And then of course have delved into it enormously, but the basic framework is let's just divide the world into two buckets. He divides it into four, but I'll just do two to make it simpler. On the right-hand side, we'll actually do complicated first because we're as humans quite familiar with complicated. And a complicated system is a system that at the end of the day is finite uh, and bounded, and which means that, for example, a number of different, and, and the causal, the causation, causal relationships are explicable. They may not, in fact, be explicit, but they are at least in principle explicable. You can identify a causal relationship between the units, which is to say they are designed. Um, a 747 and a sailing ship and the game of tic-tac-toe are all uh, relatively complicated. Uh, Snowden makes a distinction between simple and complicated. And that's epistemological, which is to say within the context of your intelligence. If it's inside the boundaries of your intelligence, it's simple. If it's outside the boundaries, it's complicated. So tic-tac-toe is simple. Go is complicated. Or at least chess is complicated. I think go is also complicated, but I don't know enough about it to say that with precision. And so one of the things about a Boeing 747 is that in principle, I could take the whole thing apart all the way down to components and reassemble it. And it's A, there's steps, there's algorithmic steps. Like I could run a software program and in principle, I could do that whole thing and it would work. You can do it. And I can, in fact, point to a particular component and just ask, like, what's that about? And it can actually, you can tell me with precision exactly what it's, what it's doing. Particularly if it's simple. If it's simple, it's really easy. If it's complicated, you may have to get a whole crew of people to be able to handle the, the complicatedness of it. Right? So that's complicatedness. Complexity is literally all the rest of the universe, right? It's, it's reality as it really is. And some of the things about complexity are that um, it's not finite or bounded. Uh, and causation is strictly indeterminable meaning that uh, you cannot actually identify the causal, the, 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 we call the efficient cause of any given event, and you can't f- precisely identify the specific effects of any given cause, right? So there's some notion there's causation going on, but it's, it's more than just like um, hard to figure out. It's somewhere in the zone of indeterminate. Okay, there's something about the inability to actually ascertain it at all that's intrinsic to the nature of the system. Um, and it's evolving. Right? This notion of not finite and unbounded means that it's evolving, that the, the qualitative characteristics of the space, like literally phenomena that did not exist at all in universe, keep fucking popping up and changing the entire category of the game. By the way, at the microcosmic scale, all the way up to the macrocosmic scale. So sometimes you'll see what we might call mutations, so changes in the characteristics on the interior of some complex system. Um, or we might have something we would generally call emergences, which might be the emergence of entirely new qualitative systems. So you say, for example, I've got um, hydrogen, helium, and gravity. And all of a sudden, out of fucking nowhere, I've got a star, right? And there's a point at which that didn't wasn't the case and a point at which it was, right? And prior to the existence of star in reality, one epistemological point might say, yeah, that was something that was possible in reality, but it wasn't actual reality. But in any event, if you're just kind of sitting there as an observer watching it, the things that can happen in reality have just really, really changed a lot. Like, for example, you can have planets with Earth. Um, so that's, that's like the difference between the two. And there's actually a really interesting history of the relationship between the two, because if you, I don't know if you know this, the history of nonlinear 
and complex and far from equilibrium. It's really like a fascinating space of time where up until the 60s or so, these weren't even really categories of thought. It's fascinating, actually, because so much of life is in the complex domain. I mean, most of the things we really care about are in the complex domain. But because Newton was so good at actually doing useful stuff, like building cannonballs, that we had this weird, uh, like, centuries-long myopia where we actually began to think of reality as only that portion of reality that linear science could build engineering out of. So we kind of like sort of looked at, at say biology and evolution and sort of like, eh, ignore that for now. Let's, let's focus on say trains. Those are really killer. We can build faster trains. That, that'll, that'll get me laid or get me rich or get me powerful, whatever it happens to be. I'm like, ignore this, this problem, which seems quite intractable and maybe put it in the epistemological category. I will figure it out tomorrow. And then of course, as it turned out is as the, the, the science began to emerge in the 60s and 70s and then really ramped in the 80s, it was, oh shit, we forgot. Almost everything that matters is in this other domain, which is strictly nonlinear, for example. Um, and so none of that science really can apply, but we can actually be scientific about it. We can actually create an entirely new domain of science or many actually distinct domains of science and bring a lot more of reality into our consideration. Mm-hmm. So, so game A is this really interesting problematic of and I guess the whole Newtonian story is an interesting example of, of how that problematic shows up, that human beings can use semantic rationality, language and uh, some finite set of symbolic objects that are in a logical relationship with each other to design and collaborate. That's like the thing that we really figured out how to do well. And it's great because it can be scaled effectively. It can write shit down and you can read it. And if the instructions are are uh, literate to you, then you can execute on it, on that plant, right? So I can create a schematic, write it down, you can execute on that schematic. So it enables collaboration or coordination possibilities that are very strong. So the use and deployment and refinement of complicatedness has been like a massive, like it's the mother of all inventions. It's the birthplace of technologia in general. It's literally the logia of techne. Um, and so it's like, wow, powerful and cool and leads to all kinds of stuff. That's game A. And now we've reached the end of that, like the set of nested S-curves that are technologia in general is reaching the end of the meta S-curve of technologia. Game A is reaching a point where its boundary conditions are fast approaching for a wide variety of different reasons. And now this poses the, hmm, what might else be? And that's in some sense was the real question. The inquiry of game B was like more of a design space. What is a design space that is not game A and which is adequate to be able to resolve the various problems that we can identify as design constraints of any viable game B like is actually in principle capable of managing the problem of software reading the world. That's like, that's one design constraint. As you spend time in that design space, you can actually begin to get some real interesting answers to the question, but that's, that's the distinction, right? It's actually literally a theoretical distinction between a concrete definition of a a system design toolkit game A and all the things that it can be and what it's, where it's headed. And then a, uh, sort of a meta design document of what this sort of thing must look like for it to be a meaningful endeavor at all. Right. And, and I want, I want a great description. I want to zoom out to talk about something you talked about earlier, which is somewhat of a frustration. I forget the word you used about you know, some element of, of the Silicon Valley entrepreneur sect. It, it, let's get into that sort of criticism or, or, or wish for change there. Is it, is it, is the problem that it takes software eating the world, uh, you know, very seriously without, you know, fully thinking about or even understanding the repercussions there or, 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 or get into the, what you wish the, the Silicon Valley entrepreneur that you were frustrated with understood better. 
Nice. Uh, all right. So I'm going to have to bring out my um, pitchforks. Yeah. Uh-huh. Torches. Yes. Um, so let's start. I will start at the top. Um, and here I will invoke the patron saints of uh, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. Yep. Um, I'm going to make a proposal. I'm going to make a proposition. The proposition I'm going to make is that there is a vastly more sacred and meaningful thing that that archetype is intended for. And I'm going to tie that actually to the history of biological evolution. So the, the, the proposition I'll put in place is that way, way back, before game A actually, the human species, which is obligate band, right? We, we, are, we are people in groups, um, in family groups, kin groups. We hit on a particular solution. The, the division of labor is coded into us in a pretty meaningful level. Whether it's epigenetic or genetic, I'm not quite sure. But there's something about different people are actually designed for different aspects of being human in, in coordination with each other. And in that, I'm proposing, and I've had proposed for a long enough time that, that it should have been thrown back in my face if it was way off. So if I'm going to say that it feels like reality is saying that it's giving me a nod here. That there's a particular typology. I'm going I'm to just call it the shamanic typology to invoke something. There's, there's probably a little bit more to it. It also shows up as the, the poet, the artist, the visionary, but also a particular flavor of entrepreneur. So I'm going to say that Steve Jobs is a, is, a, is a member of that typology. And this particular typology is responsible for insight, is responsible for actually um, being the sysadmin of the source code of culture. And that's a, that's a sacred role, right? Culture generally runs as just code. And people interact with that just code and it kind of works okay. And it probably has self-modifying elements built into it. But at the end of the day, sometimes the sysadmin has to come in and do a major update or a patch or sometimes even a complete reboot, depending on the context, right? So if you're running Eskimo code and it turns out that for whatever reason, you're going to need to migrate down to the Sahara, your sysadmin actually needs to do a comprehensive system redesign. You're actually actually, actually going to have to expand, bring in a whole bunch of other folks who have that typology, build an entire uh, software architecture group, and you redesign your cultural code deep, right? Deep, deep code. And then you've got something that works, and then you're back in, back in business, right? So I'm going to say that that's the thing that ultimately we're holding in trust. And there's some really powerful stuff that comes out of this model, by the way, which is the ability and the permission to actually generate bespoke protocols for communication and the capacity to do it. Many people critique me, for example, for speaking in a way that sounds really weird, both in terms of tone and in terms of vocabulary. But what I notice is that some people, it sounds very natural. And they actually begin to nod their heads and then they sort of bark back at me with their variation on dolphin speak. And it turns out I can understand what they're saying and something really powerful happens. And I think it's kind of part of this thing that we're supposed to be doing something because uh, it's time for a pretty significant system upgrade. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. So that's first part. That's who you are. If that's who you are, that's who you are. And to not be carrying that sacred trust is a deeply uh, ignoble thing. That's one. Uh, two, you might not actually be that. You may be a faker. There's a lot of people who have come in and simulated that because that's a, a good game to play. You know, the, the kind of typology that probably should still be stealing everybody's money by virtue of being an investment banker. Sometimes discovered that pretending to be an entrepreneur is maybe a better gig for some reason. Maybe it feels like they can get better uh, uh, social currency. And um, so there's a lot of folks out there who are actually just pretending to be this thing, this typology. Um, And of course, the niche of entrepreneurs began to become, it's complex, right? Some people who are this, who are entrepreneurs in the very positive sense are, they are there for sure. Uh, But there's a lot of other people who are simulating it and or playing the role of the artifact of the archetype. Um, And then you've got the third which is, I'm going to call them the slavers. Is that a good term? Or the uh, beguilers, also known as the venture capitalists. So 
I'm looking at you guys, not all of you, but most of you, which is how do I create a mechanism to capture, let's say 22 year old um, shaman. Jim Morrison is a similar example in a different subdomain. Generate a context that harnesses and yields the potential of this thing, but instead of pointing it at what it's, what it's supposed to be doing at its most profound capacity, you, turns it into something that turns a water wheel that generates this sort of more of, right? So instead of getting, uh, you know, the thing that Peter Thiel kind of constantly gets frustrated about is that we haven't done anything interesting or new for like 30 years. Well, this is part of the reason is that we keep pointing our interesting and new folks at more of X. And right? so then we end up getting, you know, what an infinite repetition on whatever the Snapchat Instagram thing is, as opposed to, well, frankly, anything interesting or valuable. One of the things that the, the context of Silicon Valley, broadly speaking, right? Cause we have the history of the seventies and the eighties and the emergence of technology on the East coast and the migration of some of that over to the West coast. And it's, it's a coordination with hippies and with drugs and with a willingness to try new things. And with uh, the, what was it? The, the mother of all demos and the inside of holy shit, these beanbag chair things really work and the evolution of a whole new lineage. So that context, which is a pretty, you know, it's a generative context for sure and create a a bunch of different stuff. It has created a hill climbing niche in what should be a valley crossing domain. And explain that difference just for the audience that might not be that familiar. Yeah. Okay. So this is uh, coming out of evolutionary theory. Both Eric and Brett Weinstein have used these terms quite a bit. I think I actually specifically did a YouTube video on it, but the concept is, is like this. If I mentioned a fitness landscape, so XY landscape, and I imagine the Z dimension is this thing that I'm going to call fitness, which we can sort of just say good or awesomeness or, well, most specifically, it's the probability of, 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 a, of repetition, reproductive success in the context, right? So if I've got a landscape and it's the Arctic um, and I'm doing bunny space, uh, and there's a white, fuzzy, small, compact bunny, it's going to be a really high spike because white, fuzzy, compact bunny is very, very fit in the Arctic. Whereas, um, say, neon green jackrabbit is like zero. It's like a really unfit. So you, the fitness landscape of neon orange jackrabbit is way down here and white, fuzzy bunny is up here. Now, if I migrate that niche into, hmm, I don't know, huh, Neon orange isn't going to help. So let's go with just regular brown jackrabbit into uh, the desert Southwest. The fitness landscape shifts. So now my white fuzzy bunny is done and my jackrabbit is now fit. Right? So that's basically the relationship between the two. We should recognize, by the way, that the fitness landscape is nothing but the integration of the total biome of partic- in a particular region. So it's actually the sum integral of the organism. So the white bunny is part of the fitness landscape of, say, the polar bear. And the polar bear is part of the fitness landscape of the bunny and the snow and everything else. All right, so hill climbing is changing yourself in, in an effort to become more and more like a high local hill. So I'm a gray bunny, and I begin to become more white bunny. And so it's a climbing the hill of fitness. So there's a, there's a location which where in principle there's a peak. And there may not be any given organism at that peak. Like I'm, I'm just kind of in bunny space. I'm in the transition from being a jackrabbit. Some of the bunnies that are more white tend to be more successful. And so the evolutionary function selects its way to the top of that hill. And uh, so that's one directionality. Right? So hill climbing. And it, it's kind of defined as almost a strategy of go up gradient. It's a very simple strategy. Go in the direction that is slightly more fit. And if there's a hill there, you're going to find your way to the top. Now, one of the things that happens in hill climbing 
is there begins to be a, uh, a competition for the top of the hill. It's the, the king of the hill. And one of the characteristics of the niche is that to the degree to which there is really a relatively static niche, more and more organisms are going to begin to find themselves competing to be at the top of the hill. So, so it's also an optimization component. So when we start optim- becoming a hill climber, we sort of go in the direction of, say, a, a saber-toothed tiger. And you can see, like, going from jaguar to saber-toothed tiger is this going from, like, 95th percentile to 99th percentile in a given hill of feline peak predator in the context of Paleolithic North America. It's crucial because as you move more and more up the hill, you become more and more optimized and less and less generalized. So that's attention. And Vervecchio invokes this in, in, in cognitive space. So it's an interesting cross-correlation and they're very tightly linked. So that's hill climbing. I'm going to come back to niche construction in a second because it's important. Then you've got valley crossing. So valley crossing is sort of the inverse direction. It's a actually go down in fitness. Right? So you're actually heading down some local gradient and possibly stay down for some period of time under the long game expectation that there's a higher hill yonder, right? So, you know, here's a, here's a classic example. I'm a, I'm a white bunny in the Arctic, but things are warming up. The niche is changing. And I notice for whatever reason, right, I'm obviously anthropomorphizing, but evolution somehow notices that there's a strategy here or there where becoming less white, which for a while actually is heading me down. It's still the Arctic or it's still cold. It snows a lot is part of a longer game because if I make it through the Valley of death, which sucks, right? It's not going to be easy, but if I make it through then I'm the Brown Jackrabbit as the niche transitions into being the desert and now massive explosion on the other side. And because this kind of a dynamic, and that's just one example. There's many, many other examples. Another example is just a straightforward global local optimum, right? We, we, we actually hit the local optimum of gray bunny and we're all kind of like bouncing around that hill. And it turns out to get to white bunny, we have to go through a downgrade because it's a shift in the pleiotropic. So you actually, to get from gray bunny to white bunny has to go through pleiotropy. You've got these weird like white and black patches that temporarily make you unfit. But eventually you select out the black patches and you become white. So that would be a, a global optimum. But all the gray bunnies are like, fuck that, dude. I'm not going anywhere near that. They're, they're fo- focused on hill climbing. So that's a you know, two fundamentally distinct relationships to evolutionary possibility. And each one of which is, is more or less adaptive under different contexts. So when a particular niche is relatively concentrated for a relatively long period of time, so if I just draw my XY, I've got a big hill, and it's really tall, and it just stays there forever, we're welcome to hill climbing land. Right? If you even go an iota in valley crossing, you're just going to have a bad day. You'll be either selected against or actually extinct. By contrast, if it's like the, a fluctuating ocean, where there's just like minor hills rising here and there and going away, welcome to valley crossing land. Like even spending an iota of energy or time going into hill climbing mode just again means you're going to lose. You have to get really, really good at the context of valley crossing. So here I just have to add this last piece because it's such a good fucking toolkit. And if anybody who has it and you didn't watch it in other places, this is a good thing to have, is uh, niche construction. Right? We, we organisms are not just receiving our niche we are part of, and in fact, to some extent, can actually shape the niche directly. And so beavers creating dams change the riverbed into something, the river niche into something that's more amenable to beavers. Humans do this a lot, right? In fact, you might say this is one of our biggest problems. Game A has, has given us way too much power to niche construct. And in particular, let's just kind of use a different metaphor. Let's talk about in cultural evolution, the great moderation of the 80s to now-ish uh, has been a consequence of niche construction so that the cultural, political, economic niche 
that perhaps maybe should have gone through a big change in the 70s didn't. And so the guys who had climbed the hill, who'd achieved a level of, of selective advantage in the social context of the, of the 70s, they were able to hold a niche instead of it going into desert, stayed Arctic. So they could keep winning because they had a capacity to control the nature of the niche. And so what happened was the valley crossing capacity in humanity began to get, in some sense, artificially selected against. Like starting in the late 70s, perhaps, and I certainly proposed this, and I think Eric does as well, we should have been going through a valley crossing exercise where the valley crossing typology, A, won, like it actually saw it, it was more successful, and then B, as a consequence, renewed, you know, renewed the cultural fabric into something that was more responsive to what was really emerging. But instead, we engaged in top-down niche construction. We held over a period of decades something that was effectively and increasingly super salient, hypertrophied, and increasingly fragile simulacrum of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And in, 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 in so doing, we did two things. We artificially selected for hyper-excellence, hyper-hill climbing, and artificially selected against valley crossing. Right? So poor Steve Jobs, instead of being able to be a true valley crosser, had to become a tech entrepreneur, right? which is like the, the, the minimum viable characteristic. Take maximum capacity for true valley crossing, which is real. Right? The, the innovation of novel technology is definitely valley crossing, but still fundamentally in service of the machinery of the 70s and 80s, right? and ultimately legible to the capital machinery and the, the, the commerce machinery, the marketing machinery, the educational machinery, all that stuff, like still in service of that particular mechanism, as opposed to actually being able to go down to the deeper code and renovate that deeper code in a way that was even more fundamentally adaptive to what could have been in that context. And so what happens is, is you get a, a choice. You can have, as an entrepreneur, particularly say around the turn of the millennium, um, and really 2010-ish, like after the financial crisis became you know, really, really artificial, you could either go, well, I'm, I'm going to try to sort of trod the path of authenticity and you know, really do the work and valley cross my way through this thing. Or I can punch my ticket and take the elevator straight to the top of the mountain. Right? It's not just a hill, it's a mountain. And, and a bunch of good folks named venture capitalists and angel investors and strategic advisors are lurking about, looking for people to put on the elevator. And if I can find my way onto the elevator, I get to be the head of a unicorn. I can, if I can play the excellence game, I can play the, the hill climbing game hyper-optimally, even though I'm not necessarily doing something truly meaningful in the world, I'm doing something that is perceived as super salient in a culture that's no longer deeply connected to deep reality. And so I'm beginning to select for simulation as opposed to for reality. And this is, uh, I think, the last great seduction uh, and hyper-problematic, of course. And so paint me a picture a little bit of uh, what it could have looked like if Steve Jobs and the other uh, you know, like, like-minded folks uh, were actually valley crossers. Uh, how would the world have, have changed or looked different from, as we understand it today, and then a different but related question is, let's say, you know, all the technologists and, and, and investors uh, listening say, okay, Jordan, we're, we're on board. We, we see history in the present the same way, you know, the same way you do and you're describing it here. What do we do now? <laughs> what would it look different if, if Valley Crossing would have happened? And for people who want to maybe Valley Cross now or, or get on board, 
what can we even, and I know it's early days and we're just starting to think about it, but how yeah. do we get started? So the answer to the first question is actually kind of a very interesting turn. And what I'd ask you to do is even sense the, the modality of expression, because that's key. Because remember, what's actually going to happen is we're going to start at the cultural level and work our way up. There's a tendency, and I would I'd point out this tendency, to think about the future in terms of the superficial artifacts. And that's not the point, or the present. Right? So today is not today in a meaningful sense because we have cell phones and not, say, for example, flying cars. That's not the answer to the question. Right? The answer is not we'd have flying cars instead of cell phones. Although, in fact, we might, but that's not the point. It would be a vastly simpler, more wholesome, and more meaningful world. Right? That's the key distinction. That's what happens when you hit that fork, is that you, you take the stuff from the depths of that model, the depths of the, the four-layer model, and you move it from the bottom up. You actually debase cultural currency in exchange for maximizing or supporting financial currency. And I can, I can do this in two moves, actually, because I think the first move is kind of concrete. People can get, get the sense of it and then sip it back five decades. Because I think it's kind of the same move that's happened over and over again, which is why we are where we are. So let's take a look at 2008, financial crisis. Uh, and let's compare that to 1929, financial crisis. Well, economic crisis and financial crisis commingled. So, and th think about our four-layer model. So when you have a financial crisis, it hits at the top. The financial system sees it first, it responds first, you know, stock markets collapse, whatever, right? things like that happen. Now, in some sense, you've got a, a choice on how you want to respond. You can respond to the financial level, or you can actually let the financial level burn like a forest fire. Right? You can try to come in there with a bunch of stuff and put out the fire, or you can let the fire burn at that level. If you do the former, you will, in fact, at least if you have enough tools to do it, you can actually put out the fire, hold the financial system. But you're doing it at the cost of, for example, using strict uh, Austrian economics as a model. You're doing it at the, at the cost of reducing the market's capacity to actually engage in efficient allocation of resources. You're injecting false signal into the financial layer. And so now the, the market's no longer as effective at actually knowing where the resources should be allocated. Now it's actually sensing whatever the choice making was that it was actually, it's now injecting false signal into the market as signal. And it can't tell the difference. It's incapable of it. And so now you're starting to get economic allocations that in fact are inefficient. They're wrong. Right? So you're actually destabilizing the economic layer in exchange for trying to support the financial layer. But of course, it can go deeper. If the crisis is a big one, like 1929 and 2008, you might actually see it penetrate from the financial into the economic, into the social, right? And people start getting, whoa, the choices that the political class are making, are they increasing or decreasing the political currency? So let's do now 1929 Germany and 1929 United States. The way that the United States responded to the Great Depression broadly speaking, increased political currency. There are obviously a lot of cultural responses to, say, confiscation of gold, but across the social field, net-net confidence in both the competence and good faith of the political class, politics, democracy in America, increased significantly during the arc of the Great Depression. Whereas, of course, in Weimar Germany, it evaporated completely. And the way Weimar Germany ended up ultimately being taken to that crisis, it penetrated from financial to economic to social and then ultimately actually to cultural, right? So Weimar Germany's cultural layer evaporates and it converts into Nazi Germany, not the kind of thing that you'd like to have happen ever again, right? In the US, for sure, the cultural layer got stronger. Right? So if you go back and actually read letters and you know, novels and uh, sociology books set or, or written in the period of the Great Depression or talk to old people who are alive, they will often comment on how 
life, day-to-day life, even where it felt harder at economic level, actually felt more real at a social level. Like communities pulled together. You had to depend on your neighbor. You trusted your, you built with your friends. You hung out with your family like that. There's a warmth to it that, well, ultimately it's what gave rise to America in the fifties. And it gave rise to a, a deeper, stronger cultural fabric with more confidence in its, in its capacities, the competence and the good faith of, of the political level, which then builds up, right? It's from foundations up and that builds real power. But of course, you could do the opposite, right? So Germany. So then switch, move forward to 2008. Guess what happened? We made, I think, the elites at least, made a collective effort to debase the deeper currencies in exchange for supporting these two more superficial currencies. And, and by the way, across the world, right? Not just in the US, but in Europe and uh, China and Japan, et cetera. So what we have seen then is, of course, a debasement of the political currency. Nobody trusts political institutions at all. And now a debasement of the cultural currency. Now we're in the process of reaping what we sowed way back then. When, when they say so the Tea Party showed up, that was a response to a, a debasement of the political currency. Hey, hey, uh, political class, you fucked up somehow. Not quite sure how, but something just, this is a sign, this is a signal. Something is wrong. Occupy Wall Street. Something is wrong. That's a real sign. You get a choice. You can either respond to reality or you can double down on delusion. Well, they double down on delusion. Well, it doesn't go away. It just goes down deeper. So now we're dealing with the, the cultural level. And of course, if you power through the cultural level, at least with, the, with human beings that currently exist, you're going to be operating on the biological substrate. And the biological substrate, for example, is obligate tribal, which is why ethno-nationalism is beginning to rise. It's because the cultural level of what has allowed us to actually be coordinated in relatively cosmopolitan sociology is fabricating. And if it goes away, the baseline below that is, that's my kin. Fuck you. Um, which is, by the way, I mean, that's predictable. You can predict that. In fact, I did predict it and tried to shout it from the rooftops back in 2009, but the folks I was talking to didn't care, or at least didn't, didn't, uh, didn't, didn't change their behavior. So we got here through many different stages of this game A story. So this is why I want to say game A, because um, what, what would the world look like right now? So if we hadn't engaged in that top-down niche construction, which we can also just call delusion, we can, we can use the individual cognitive psychological model because they're very similar. The socio-cultural model and the cognitive psycho are not quite isomorphic, but they're very metaphorically connected. You can learn a lot. So as a culture, as a society, we engaged in hardcore drug abuse to enable ourselves to not live in reality for decades um, with somewhat obvious consequences if you think about it in that fashion. If we hadn't done that, a lot of stuff would have broken. A lot of stuff would have broken in the 70s and the 80s. Like it would have been pretty scary, pretty nasty. Like we would have had deep cleansing economic crises that would have crashed. Probably the entire banking sector would have just gone away. And, and is that also what you mean by drug abuse? When, when, you, when you say it, you mean literal and metaphorically? Like economic, you know? Actually, yes. Both literally and metaphorically. So metaphorically, we did say like, uh, what do you call it? Um, fiat currency, shifting from the gold standard to fiat. Or, or obligate fiat, and then from gold, from obligate fiat to petrodollar, and from petrodollar to whatever the fucking you know thing we're doing right now, self-conscious delusion. It's kind of an interesting story we have right now, um, and then actual drug abuse, right? Both causally and effective. So on the one hand, a whole bunch of cocaine really helped fuel this sort of set of choices, and a whole bunch of oxycontin and uh, oxycodone is now part of what is enabling people to simply be not well, and meth, and, 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 in the delusional landscape that is the, the structure that we happen to have still be holding on to. So if you could imagine, and there's actually some really nice novels that were written back in the 50s and 60s 
um, that if you just kind of like drop into those spaces and feel the texture of it. In fact, even last night, I just found myself on YouTube watching like 1955 to 1965, like candid camera in black and white. Feel the people on the other side of that camera. Feel the wholesomeness and even like the innocence and the reality and the connectedness and the degree to which they feel like the kind of person of like, wow, that would actually be a friend. Like there's a quality of friendness in those people that's hard to feel now with people because, you know, we've spent a lot of time fucking people up. So wholesome is a good point and connected. And by the way, vastly more well positioned to actually make the transition that we're talking about because you wouldn't have to go back and recapitulate. You wouldn't have to recover wholesomeness before you could step forward. You'd have that as a foundation. You know, so things like really hard, complicated problems, like how do we actually solve, say, uh, the relationship between our complicated system and the complex ecological environment? Think about like the 70s NASA mindset just upgraded by 40 years of racked real capacity sitting on top of a substrate of a culture that was deeply solid in a political economic system that was functional, like not functional, but hyper-functional. Just take those two things, right? You'd have a bunch of uh, can-do smart people who know how to collaborate without defection, who can actually think about reality without marketing, know science and can actually cooperate across distinctions, like simple, simple stuff, I guess. (laughs) But the kind of thing you need when you're trying to tackle a big hard problem. And the problem we're dealing with is really big hard, like wicked problems require that kind of a, of a concept. So that's one side. I can go into more of that if you'd like, but uh, it's sort of a, the vision that, that Roddenberry put into Star Trek, the next generation, that spirit, the spirit of it, more than the artifacts of it, would literally just be the world we're actually living in with a pretty high degree of confidence. Like we had a, the baby boomers really, really amazingly despoiled their inheritance at a level that is, well, if we make it through this, we'll go down as the single greatest since maybe Rome third century and maybe full stop. Okay. So next, what do I do? Well, it ain't easy. There's about, well, there's kind of two moves to be perfectly frank. And then the third thing that happens, the first move is (laughs) what's the phrase recognize you've got a problem. Um, Let's just do AA on this. Um, And a big part of the problem is malware. So, we are all running a lot of malware and, and this is malware either because it's just not fit. It was just bad code that is just kind of set, stuck in the system or because it's actual malware. Like it was actually injected by malevolent actors to, to jack our system in some way and variations in between. Like there's uh, say for example, go to college is malware. I think probably well-intentioned. Like I don't think it was intended to, to mess you up, but it's malware. It's, 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 how do I say this? That code runs way too much choice. It may should, maybe should run some choice. Like there's some people for whom that's a, still a valid good choice, but it runs way too much choice. And, and even to the point where like, again, like middle school kids are now spending their summer studying for the SAT so they can increase the bar with each other in a queen, a red queen's race to do something that will definitely not be worth its while at, in, in, at the end. Right. That's like what happens. So malware, well, shit, you're going to have to defrag the hard drive. You're going to have to figure out how to actually reboot your own individual system and find out how to reload something without all that malware. That is a non-trivial problem. Fortunately, it's a soluble problem. It can be done, uh, or at least it seems reasonably soluble. And I myself have been endeavoring to do it for enough years to say that I've made progress. Okay, I'm and this is the goal of Neurohacker? No, this is one thing that Neurohacker was created to help with. It's a big thing. So it's vastly larger than Neurohacker, but Neurohacker was certainly created with that in mind. 
Um, and to the degree if NeuroHacker is able to do more, it would you know, endeavor to address that whole problem for sure. So that's one piece. And we can go into the indent to some detail if you'd like. And I use the word malware because it connects with my own background as a sort of a software internet person. But we should be clear on the fact that it's not purely cognitive. In fact, most of it has to do with the body um, and the relationship between the mind and the body. So that's one. Two is reboot society at the level of relationality. So make better friends. Uh, get into better relationships with your family, or at least with the aspects of your family where better relationality is both meaningful and possible. Practice the fine art of discernment and of right relationship in all contexts. So discernment in this, in this particular sense is the ability to identify what is the, the, the right relationship that is possible now with this given individual. So you and I, right? to find out what is the highest possibility of our relationship. Discernment is the fine art of that. And then right relationship is the practice of stepping into that and then enabling a future frontier, a further frontier of that relationship. And then again, discerning is that available and, and, and continue to go into that. So reweave the fabric of culture at the level of direct relationality, at the level of getting better and better and better at just being a good friend, at being a good partner, at being a good parent, at being a good child. And you notice there's a feedback loop here. Now, a lot of our malware is getting in the way of a relationality, but also to the degree which our relationships are more real and healthier, it really supports the d- deeply difficult challenge of identifying and getting over the malware. And right? so those two things are co-creating. They really support each other. That, okay, so once you've gone into that, and by the way, that becomes progressive. As you do that, more and more starts to open up. Then you step into the next big piece, which I would call something like, maybe even like your vocation or your calling or your, your dharma. And you'll notice that I'm actually having to explicitly use language from spiritualism and religion to even describe the function. And so to the degree to which that's throwing a flag for you, I would suggest that's malware. Yes, there is reality to the fact that religious and spiritual traditions have thrown a lot of mistake and delusion into human society. I'm telling a story where we're sort of swimming up to our eyeballs in mistake and delusion. Religion and spirituality, to be perfectly frank, over the past century have not been the primary contributors to that. That doesn't mean much of anything. It just means you just have to be careful and thoughtful when you're dealing with shit. So let's not be stupid, but let's be smart and say, okay, these concepts of vocation and calling and dharma, they point to something. We point to an abstract operator in choice space that is a real thing. And it's something along the lines of getting very, very clear on what the Japanese would call your ikigai, right? The overlap between your unique singular capacities the moment that which is really most needful now and your joy, your bliss, that, that which most fully feeds your growing soul because you're not a thing. You're not a being, you're a becoming. So you have to look at your being and your becoming and the world in which those are taking place. Right? That's another way of looking at it. But get really clear on it and notice that most of your artifacts of what you think is your calling are probably driven by malware, probably driven by models that aren't yours models that other people have created, you know, tech entrepreneur, as an example, it may very well be that it ain't, that ain't your, uh, that ain't your calling. It may be something quite different. In fact, you may not even have a word to describe it because game a has given us all of our words and it's really not describing the reality we live in very well. So you may have to do this process that I call reinventing where you actually break it down into its lower level fundamentals like empathy or discrimination between what is more and what is less right or, 
supporting people, like basic stuff. And then perhaps as you get better sense on that, then you can begin to see how that shows up, shows up in a doing, in an actual kind of temporal, spatio-temporal, relational bound resource movement process that actually uses those capacities in the world. And, I, and it sounds banal, but I don't mean this banal. I mean this like you're cross to bear, right? I mean the, the, the piece of the puzzle of the bigger story that is yours and yours alone, because the amount of bandwidth and the amount of energy that will flow through the total system to make the transition from game, game A to game B is enormous. And you can think of that as almost like entropy, or you can think about it as weight as a good example. So I've been using the metaphor of Mjolnir, Thor's hammer. And notice the thing about Thor's hammer. I think it's really important. Thor's hammer is not heavy. It's like a heavy hammer. The Hulk can't lift Thor's hammer. And the Hulk is like the most strong. Can't lift Thor's hammer. It's infinitely heavy unless it's exactly yours to carry. But if you are worthy, and we think we've identified like three people, then it's infinitely light. That's a really good metaphor. That's like an archetype. Because if you're carrying something, if you're trying to do something that is not very, very deeply specifically yours to do, as more bandwidth, as more energy is flowing through the system, it gets, it's going to accelerate to infinitely heavy. And you'll become Atlas holding the earth. It'll just flatten you. So you're just going to have to fucking drop it. And one way or another, you're going to drop it. You might as well drop it intentionally. And hopefully drop it on somebody for whom it is their drop. Because if it is, then suddenly it becomes a lot easier. So this is like, it's a lot of transformation, right? You have to really have an enormous amount of humility. And honestly, I would recommend infinite humility from my personal perspective, which is to say, you probably don't know jack shit. You're probably going to fail every time you try anything. I don't mean, I don't mean self, I'm saying this in kind of a harsh way, but yeah. I, don't, I don't mean in the sense of like self-loathing. I just mean to really, really recognize that the thing that got you here, this is particularly true for, say, like the billionaires of the world. If you happen to be a truly successful tech entrepreneur, the, the models, the frameworks, the habits, the strategies, and by the way, a lot of the relationships that got you to the top of the local hill are almost certainly not going to be in service of where it is we actually need to go. They're just hill climbing. It's a hill. You need a valley cross. So they're going to get in the way. And you're going to have this voice in the back of your head saying, hey, dude, I fucking made you a billion dollars that private island in that jet? How can you possibly throw that away? Fuck that. This is all wrong. Just keep taking the drugs. It's going to be okay. And by the way, oftentimes for real, Burning Man just having finished. (laughs) So that's a big deal, right? Stepping off your high horse and recognizing that you may actually not, you may have to actually go back into child's mind. And child's mind is no fun thing. And child's mind is, is vulnerability, innocence, and radical incompetence in the face of a gigantic world and no parents to be found anywhere. But to accept that, step into it, do the work that needs to be done to free yourself of all that which ostensibly may have actually gotten you to, a, to singular greatness, but nonetheless no longer serves you or anyone else. Rebuild the fabric of relationality for real, which by the way, money and power and fame might very well get in the way, and then begin to discover that piece, which may in fact not be the least bit interesting or the least bit uh, glorious that is nonetheless precisely and exclusively yours to do. And with utmost humility, bring it in uh, with mastery. That would be my recommendation. (laughs) I love it. So so if you follow up, let's just say I'm I'm this, you know, uh, billionaire CEO that you're speaking with. And and I say, Hey, you know, I've just built this enormous company. I've built all these skills of of managing teams, inspiring people of, of allocating, you know, resources. Uh, I have all this charisma how are you going to tell me that none of my skills are going to, or that most of my skills aren't going to apply? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's really two pieces to that answer because in some sense it's not true, right? In some sense, some portion that is probably deeply fundamentally who you are, right? And so let's not forget that. Um, whatever the journey that got you here, hopefully you weren't fucking faking it the whole time. You probably couldn't be truly successful if you were, right? It's hard work being Elon Musk. There's no way that he is faking it. He is, he is pushing himself to the utmost. But there's two things, two things to keep in mind. One is you probably have ignored other important stuff on the way, right? You've been engaging in hill climbing, which means you've been optimizing. And a lot of that optimization has left a lot of stuff on the wayside. So you are not whole. You are uh, one of Nietzsche's monstrous reverse cripples, giant capacities in some areas and micro or non-existent capacities in other areas. And those other areas are part of who you are, right? So you're going to have to actually drop your amazing meta capacities, crawl into these other aspects of yourself, really, really inhabit them, do penance, do the, the first four steps of the 12 step program. Then from that place and from that perspective, and now with a lot more wisdom and humility, then you can actually go back and reactivate those, those areas of true genius, but now with something that is sacred, not profane. Right? You're no longer abusing yourself and the world by using your genius. Uh, by the way, I'm not. Well, in the case of neural lace, maybe. In the case of Tesla, maybe not. Specifically, calling up poor Elon, because an archetype that attracts all kinds of lightning bolts. But I'm speaking to the individual who happens to be hearing what I'm saying. So that's one side. And the, the other side is just to just think about the notion of context. You know, the, 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 the kind of thing that is needful is not the same kind of thing. It's just raising children is not the same thing as climbing Mount Everest. And um, what we're doing is a lot more like raising children than it is like climbing Mount Everest. And there are aspects of you that if given the care and the nutrition to truly develop and brought into right relationship with the whole of you will enable you to truly be a great parent. Um, not just a great leader of expeditions to the top of mountains. Let me ask a, another question. Hey, you've said that, you know, I've been focusing on optimizing a certain set of things, the things that I, you know, this CEO have been focused on optimizing are the things that, uh, that we measure at the company or, or that are, are, are measure, measurable and legible. And because, you know, I've been taught, Hey, measure what matters. So that, that's what I focused on. And so is the solution to, you know, measure lots of other things that I'm not currently measuring or, or find better ways to measure them? Or is it to reprogram so I don't even care about measurements uh, at all? Oh, man. Um, so to continue with our, our metaphor of drugs, um, you could choose methadone. And that, that would be measuring lots of other things. <laughs> yep. And that's not necessarily the worst thing. I mean, sometimes it's helpful. But remember the complicated and the complex. To measure is to render unto the complicated domain in, in a deep sense, right? To, to optimize around a metric, to optimize around a finite set of metrics is ultimately at the end of the day to be complicated. I made the distinction between the, uh, the way that you might play a role in game A or in the transition or in game B. And I would suggest, by the way, not to allow your ego to try to let you off the hook by saying, oh, oh I'll play a role in game A. <laughs> uh, because that's awfully easy to say. You know, I'll be a philanthropist. I'll, I'll do less harm with my billions. Um, nope, sorry. You don't get to actually choose that. Fate has a role in mind for you, which is to say there's something about the nature of the complex system in which we find ourselves that your, your particular life path and capacities are actually where it, it's needed. Um, and so if uh, being part of game B is ultimately part of your dharma, then you might as well just man up and step into it and don't pretend. But 
It may not be, right? It may in fact be that fighting fires in game A is, is what you're here for. Certainly in that case, metric expansion is a useful, useful tool, uh, both because it's, it's legible. Other people can get that. You can actually go to a lot of other people and say, here, let's add these six metrics. And they'll be like, yeah, metrics are cool. And six is not that not much. You actually would shift things, possibly meaningfully if they're well, well considered. And even in the space of transition, I think there's a lot of the stuff that we do in game A that's necessary. Because remember, this complicated machinery is currently supporting everybody. I mean, we can't just, we can't eat. We can't heat our homes uh, outside of game A right now. Um, and it's going to take a while. I'm talking like generations. I'm not talking like 15 minutes two, three generations before we truly are in a situation where the socio-technical infrastructure, the meta-psychotechnologies and technologies of culture, and the individuals, that's the triad that makes up a thing, are self-supporting in game B. It's going to take a while. So the transition is going to take a while. And we're going to have to be quite thoughtful. Again, not delusional, right? Not, Not letting ourselves off the hook, but quite thoughtful about how we actually refine and use the best and the sort of failing in the right direction aspects of game A to support a real transition that allows game B to have the womb that it needs to actually be able to develop to the point where it can begin to take over and, and, and then take responsibility for the world. So in some sense, yes. In another sense, no. Right? In another sense, there are actually, frankly, deeper capacities. And here again, if I haven't invoked John Verveke, let me invoke him again. His language in here is quite strong. So... Let us move from the domain of propositional knowing down stack. Let's move down through procedural and perspectival and into participatory. Participatory is not metricized. can't be, right? Relevance realization is an infinite domain. You can't generate even if an asymptotically finite system, by the way. Bad news AI, guys. We can go into that if you'd like. Um, Can't do it. Can't do that job. Uh, Fortunately, the body that we live in was evolved to do that precise job. So building good instincts, learning that intuition is a real thing, right? It's not a made up thing and it's not also a magical thing. It's just a real thing as anybody who's ever done anything meaningful knows and learning how to actually use the whole of your instrument, the whole of your embodied mind in world to make effective choices is the real answer of which, by the way, then computational analytics is a part. But now it's a part brought into service of a larger whole, not an upstart first officer taking itself as the captain of the ship. And so in, in the game B sort of version of the world, met- metrics ha- have a role, but a significantly decreased role in terms of, you know, motiv- you know fundamentally what they do in EMA, which is motivate people and, and help allocate attention and, and resources. Yeah, they do. They, they must, right? It's impossible not to. There's a... Uh... Uh, a necessity of being able to actually take measure of the world. And you know, even a simple measure, what temperature is it outside? Like we, we were going to use that. Um, but it's embedded into a context where, um, well, to be perfectly frank, I mean, to use, use the language from cybernetics, the control structure is larger and outside of the metric structure. So the metrics are inputs into a context that has more things than um, finite numerical metrics as its control system. Um, for example, Booleans, to just use computational language. So, you know, you can think about this. We can actually think about this quite algorithmically. I could try to build a system that does something like analytically assesses uh, the temperature, the humidity, the wind direction, the cloud cover, and chooses what clothes I should wear, for example. And it, it won't suck. It's actually going to be okay. 
And if I, if I, if I artificially constrain the system to actually only have four choices, then it can actually do, it can do that job. Right. By the way, I don't know if this seems familiar. Welcome to like everything that we live in right now. Uh, Facebook, right? I can't give you real relationships, but I can give you like four emoticons. Choose one. Okay. So that's kind of a game A at its maximum direction. And that's and, another and way kind of. Real quick, how are you using the word real there? Where, where did I use it? Sorry. Uh, real relationships. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. So what I mean by real relationships is um, relationality on the basis of the depth, the breadth, and the, the evolutionary duration of the increasing vector of sovereignty of the individuals involved, right? So what that means is my relationship with you is a relationship where on the one hand, I am endeavoring to support your becoming more sovereign. Like that's the, the, the intent of our relationship. And you're endeavoring to support my becoming more sovereign. And, right, that bidirectionality. And there's a third. The actual relationship is an ontological primitive that begins to have more and more depth and richness to it. And so it begins to have, we begin to have agreements. We begin to have communications protocols. And we begin to have um, you know, a history and a connectedness that allows us to do deeper and harder things with each other. It allows us to get deeper in our own selves and broader, cover more categories. So that's, that's realness of relationality. On one example, I could try to write a computer algorithm that could choose what I wear on the basis of, let's say, the environmental characteristics. But notice, in order to do it, I have to actually artificially constrain the space of possibility and even just the stuff I'm looking at. Um, and then I might be like a really aspiring late 90s coder and I'll say, hey, I'm going to try to add in like fashion and dating. I'm going to plug it into eHarmony and figure out, you know, I'm going to have, add, add game to my algorithm. Um, you know, the maximally sociopathic algorithmic approach and be those two things are very closely related or I can be a person and let the person make the choice and just give the person some data, <laughs> say, well, it's going to be 93 degrees and sunny. Uh, you might, you know, that's it. Like that's not all I really need as a person who has some degree of, of basically knowing how to dress myself. I don't actually need all that other stuff. So that's kind of the idea. Like give us the data that is, is meaningful to choice making and don't, go any further than that. And obviously we may ask more. So queries are crucial. I create a query space where I can explore the raw data and it's, it's possible for me to always go all the way down to the raw data and, and be able to build up my own capacity to which I want. There's actually a whole sort of design ethos that's part of this story. But I, I think we're getting pretty close to the, with my physical end and the attention span of the average <laughs> hominid. <laughs> Maybe a, a couple more questions. W- one is, um, what do you say to the, you know, sort of, this is the Tyler Cowen view, you know, Tyler Cowen, Patrick Collison just came out with sort of progress studies, you know, call to arms. Uh, and what do you say to the view of, you know, I asked, when I asked Tyler, very smart guy, economists say, um, hey, Tyler, you know, is, you know, Tyler wrote a book praising or the need for economic growth and how it's led to all these incredible things. And GDP is correlated with a lot of things that we care about, you know, uh, informality, you know, et cetera. When I say, hey, isn't it unsustainable? He says, yeah, but for how many, you know, for how long? You know, maybe maybe in thousands of years, I'll take a few, you know, a few thousand more years of it. And plus it beats the alternative, which is, you know, stagnation. I, I guess you could say, hey, there's a different alternative. But I guess you've said that, you think by, you know, you give us 50% by 2100 or something like that. Yeah. 
what, what do you believe different than what he believes, which is you know, reminiscent of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a larger view? Like, what, what does he not understand? Well, I don't know Tyler at all. Right? So I'm literally right now interpolating based upon the set of words that you've just said and my own biases and stereotypes associated with tags like economist. Right? So I'm projecting. Uh, I think in some sense, I'm actually using Ken Arrow as my stand-in, which is kind of a bad one. Uh, maybe Posner, Friedman, like, you know, economists with whom I have some familiarity. Um, so be, be that, right? So uh, it'd be easier if, if, if the argument was sort of more first person, but let me see what I can say. So one piece that is a typically missing from essentially all economic models is humans, real humans, actual living, anthropologically real, neurologically real humans and the ways that they actually go about making choices. And what happens, for example, when meaningfulness is the fabric of reality. And so it is the case that we actually have done quite an extraordinary job of giving ourselves what we want to the degree to which we can name it. Um, this is a real problem, though, because we're actually, it's now quite proven um, in cognitive science that people are quite poor at knowing what they need. Um, we tend to artifact, or, you know, there's a sense of need, like, this is very simple. Like, I have a feeling in my body where maybe I'm thirsty. But for whatever reason, uh, what pops up into my mind is, say, a stimulant, like a chocolate or candy, or maybe a, a beverage that won't necessarily actually give me hydration. And so my needs satisfying and my wants articulation are actually not particularly well connected. This is stumbling on happiness and all that other kinds of stuff. We're pretty shitty at actually doing that for cognitive reasons. Culture is the answer to that problem because we're way outside of our adaptive landscape or we're way over our adaptive heads. And our culture is a, not a very effective culture at actually giving us high quality needs meaning. So the degree to which we've actually hypertrophied both our capacity and our intensity of meeting our wants without being able to actually have full symmetry of that capacity to actually meet our needs is, you know, it's uh, the scene from Scarface. With the pile of cocaine. Yep, you have successfully been able to get a giant pile of cocaine. Well, that's true. Um, it leads to scenes with machine guns. So that's one piece, right? And I don't mean that to be superficial. What it means is just take a broader view of the, the cognitive neuroscience. Um, take a broader view of the anthropology. For that matter, I'd say also take a broader view of things like the way the complex, like the stuff that, that Jeffrey West pointed out. That's another good one. Like, let's just take a look at that. So when a city turns into a corporation, two things will happen. One is it will experience a brief golden age. The second is that it's already dead. Once the golden age is over, it will go through collapse. And by city, I just, you could also just say a nation, community, even a body, human. There's something about this dynamic, this relationship, and it's the complex, complicated thing, right? Once you have generated an optimizing function in a complex system, you will for sure get that optimization. You will then have a something that looks like a golden age, but only within the phase space of the metrics that you're actually optimizing for. And you will for sure have killed the organism. Now the question is for how long? Well, here's what's quite interesting. Again, almost back to, to West's stuff. This is one of those things that happened. Like I actually interacted with, with Jeffrey's stuff back in 2006, I think. Like at a, at a conference or not even a conference, like a kind of a close group where he was giving some of the first stuff that was going on in the context of cities. And he kind of mentions a passing because he's British and he's a physicist. So he kind of doesn't like to hang his hat on things that aren't able to be very micro concrete or rigorous. But he mentioned 44, 2045. He mentioned that, you know, as they were doing these curves, they noticed that 
that no matter what you did, even if you kind of created a new S-curve, the meta S-curve kept going to infinity, or in this case, termination at 2045. And I was just sort of, you know, I paid attention. My ears perked up at that. So I paid a lot of attention. I spent a lot of time at SFI and, and engaged in a bunch of different groups. And what I noticed was that that kind of a thing kept popping up from different methods of analysis, not exactly 2045, but like things where different methods of analysis showed a, uh, a collapse event, some sort of accelerating breakdown from multiple different directions that, that ended up co-involving each other and therefore an acceleration in that range, like 2035, 2055 for like nine or 10 distinct domains showed up that kind of a thing. So I you know, kept paying more and more attention and kept working on, okay, what's a broader theory that might explain this, but I would just look at Jeffrey's thing. Yeah. There's something there, something real about what happens if you stay on the game, a train and how long you can continue to double down on the things of hypertrophication and trying to take that metric space and, ex- and, and do render, like try to make your, your, your uh, metric space increasingly large. China has done this, right? as far as I can tell. China has made a, uh, an intentional commitment to doubling down on micro-complicatedness. They seem to have chosen to give over their complex cultural and social environment to a complicated, a micro, hyper-micro complicated system. And here I'm speaking about the social currency and, 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 and AI, right, both. And my proposition is that's the end of that. Like they will experience, according to my, the things I've just been saying, and of course there's a lot of depth we can go into if we ever get time again, they will experience a potentially quite spectacular golden age. It will look really neat. And also they've already, they've killed the organism. Like something deeply, deeply bad will happen. And that's, I think, kind of the end step. Like what, what's going on in, in, uh, in Silicon Valley, like the, the, oh shit, let's just hand it over to AI because that's the only thing that can solve this problem. It's the same thing. Right? To the degree to which the AI that we are building is strictly algorithmic, right? strictly causal, it's strictly complicated. No matter how nuanced and fast you can, I don't care what your clock speed is, there is a qualitative distinction between the complicated and the complex. And it will not get you there. It will actually ultimately mean that when you, when you finally do hit the wall, that hitting is the end. It is the last. It's like really bad. The, the longer you delay actually kicking the habit, the harder the come down. So that's the, the metaphor. And, you know, I, I see that as, um, you know, sort of China is like the black mirror come to life in some ways. And uh, what I see Game B is describing is like uh, – what could white mirror look like or what could the alternative, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the TV show, black mirror. I've watched exactly two episodes. So I have some sense. Yeah. My um, guest today has been Jordan Hall. Jordan, you've been more than generous with your time. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Beautiful. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 